Good morning, all. <clears throat> we come to the last message in the book of Joshua, and we're on chapters 23 and 24, and it's found on page 188 of the Pew Bible. <clears throat> Chapter 23 is headed Joshua's Farewell to the Leaders, and chapter 24, The Covenant Renewed at Shechem. <clears throat> I'm only reading chapter 23. Rest easy. <laughs> After a long time had passed, and the Lord had given Israel rest from all her enemies around them, Joshua by then, a very old man, summoned all Israel, their elders, the leaders, the judges and officials, and said to them, I'm very old. You're, you yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It is the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the lands of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea in the west. <clears throat> the Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations, to this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you, one of you routs a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you, just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they'll become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs, thorns in your eyes, until you perish from the good land which the Lord of God has given you. Now I am about to go away of all the earth, you know with the, all your heart and soul that not one of all of the good promises the Lord your God has given you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come to you, so he will bring on you all the evil things that, have, have, that has threatened until the Lord your God has destroyed you from the good land he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord, your God, which he commanded you, 
and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. That's the end of chapter 23. Friends, uh, good morning and welcome. Uh, nice and warm in here, isn't it? And it's good to be uh, gathering, to sing, to pray, to hear God's word and to expect that God would speak to us, that God would change our hearts, God would redirect our paths, and I hope that is your expectation every time you come together. We don't just come to come to church, to sit and to listen, but we come to be changed and transformed by the God of the Bible, who we believe is alive and very active even as we gather. I want to pray that God would uh, speak to us and change us. Lord God, we thank you that as we gather in your name, you are very present amongst us. We thank you for the inward work of your Holy Spirit who seeks to make us like Jesus. And we pray as we consider the people of God in the Old Testament and then seek to apply this text to us today that you would uh, speak clearly to us, correct us, train us and uh, disciple us in the way in which we ought to live. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, uh, some of you have been here during the series, some are here for the first time today. I'm glad to, to have you here if you're visiting maybe for the first time as well. But this is, this is the last talk in the uh, series in Joshua. It's been about six or seven weeks in the book. Last time, last uh, two weeks ago, we were looking at the fact that they were taking possession of some more land. And uh, what happens in the rest of the book is you have more land taken. They then distribute the land amongst the, the nations or the, uh, sorry, the tribes of Israel. And then we, we come towards the end where they make a covenant renewal, where they say, yes, God, we are on your side. Yes, God, we will do what you've asked us to do. And we need to keep in mind, as the theme has been in this series, that God is a promise-keeping God. Significant for Joshua's people, significant for us today, that if God makes promises, he keeps them, which means that we are safe and secure in him for eternity. Joshua chapter 1 verse 6, God said to Joshua at the beginning of his ministry, Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Then in Joshua chapter 21, a couple of chapters earlier than what was read today, we read these words. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. So the, you have a summary statement there, the chapter 21, uh, that God had now given the land to his people. Uh, they, the occupation is not quite complete. You'll notice that there are still enemies in the land. But in a sense, the war is over. You just have the cleaning up job to do afterwards. The national campaign is over. They, Israel is established in the land, in the promised land that God had promised them. And although there are other people still, and they will continue because Israel failed to do what God asked them to do completely... And they will threaten Israel with temptation, and we'll see that. But no one was powerful enough to dislodge them, is what God says. And the big question is, how did they get the land? And they need to remember that they received the land by the grace and generosity of God. It's given to them. 
They don't win the land. God gives them the land. It's an act of grace. And in chapter 3 now, we come to Joshua's farewell speech to the leaders in the nation. And I want you to sort of be captured by what he's thinking, how he's feeling, because this is like his final words to the nation. We've done all this together. We notice he's going to die very soon at the age of 110. But it's his final words. And I, I picture what would be my final words to the church if I was finishing up here. What would I say to you? I'm not going to tell you what that is. Hopefully, I, it, it'll be in a few years' time, not now. <laughs> What's he going to say to them as they now enter the land, as he's about to go to glory himself? And he remembers the covenant that God made with the people, and he urges them to respond with covenant loyalty. God has made an agreement, a covenant with his people, and it has responsibilities. And now is there a reaffirmation. I guess some people have a reaffirmation of their marriage vows, don't they? And they say, well, you know, at 20 years or 30, we just thought we'd have a, a celebration to reaffirm our vows. It's a bit like this. They're reaffirming their commitment to the God who has saved them. And Joshua is dealing with the theme of faithfulness. He emphasizes God's faithfulness on one hand to give them the promised land. Now he's calling upon the people to be faithful in response. And begins by reminding them what God has done for them, point one. In verses one to five, he wants them to remember that God has done this. Israel is to remember that God has been faithful to his covenant promises. He's won the battle, not them. It's his power, not your skill, that has given you the promised land. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done for all these nations for your sake. God has done it. For your sake, it was the Lord your God who fought for you. But he also looks forward, because the job is not completely done. He looks forward to the work that will remain to be done after his death. In other words, there's a word, guys, God has done this, but he's got more to do. Like the nations that God has defeated in verse 3, the remaining nations must also be expelled. Because God is faithful to his promise, they should have confidence that it can be done. But although it is God who gives the victory, the future Israel, like the past generation, must lay claim to what God has promised. And verse 5 focuses on this. He says, The Lord your God himself will drive them out of your way. He will do it. He will push them out before you, and you will take possession of their land, as the Lord your God has promised. God pushes them out, but you have a part to play too. You need to take Possession. Notice that the work of God and the work of his people working together. Israel gives the credit to God, but they need to play a part as well. So what's our application for us today? Let's move from Joshua to us. What has God done for us and what should be our response? It's an expression I heard many years ago and I love, and I, and I think it's a helpful one. We, as Christians, need to have a gratitude attitude. Sometimes Christians whinge a lot. Sometimes we whine a lot. Sometimes we complain a lot about our, our state in life. But we need to be the men and women who see the grace of God displayed in the cross of Christ and in the resurrection of Christ and the forgiveness through Christ and the eternal life through Christ and the powerful daily living in Christ and have an expression, I guess, an, a, what they call a gratitude attitude. 
that as you look at life, that your first temptation is not to criticise or not to complain, but your first response is to say, how good is God? How good and gracious and merciful is our God for all that he has given us? Now, I know that's not always easy, correct? Sometimes tough things happen to us, and God understands that we lament, we grieve, we cry, we weep, as the Lord Jesus did. But friends, I was once dead under the judgment of God, going to a Christless eternity, and then God saved me, and he's put me, taken me out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and he's now living in me, and I'm heading towards eternity with him forever. You see, I was going to one, in one direction, and God has saved me. And that salvation at the age of 15 for me, or 14 and a half in fact, completely transformed my thinking, my direction in life and how I view life. When we remember the Christmas events, the incarnation, when we remember the, uh, the Easter events, the death and resurrection of Christ, we have a gratitude attitude. We give God the credit. Now, the divine initiative, which means God's divine work, which is God's grace, leads to a life of grateful obedience. And sometimes I've shared the gospel with people, and you may have had these conversations and, and they're convinced that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the saviour of the world. And I've, I've helped people understand through the res evidence for the resurrection and they have confessed to me, yes, Jesus rose from the dead. And then I say, will you now turn from your sins and believe in him? And they say, no. See, they can be convinced of the truth of the gospel, but there's a sinful orientation that wants them to go away from God's way and God's truth. And one person once said to me, well, if I become a Christian, am I going to have to go to church? Am I going to have to read my Bible? Am I going to have to learn to pray? Am I going to have to like, start serving other people? They weren't pleased with those thoughts. Because you see, they wanted a ticket to heaven, but they didn't want Jesus who provides the ticket to heaven. If you only have want the ticket to heaven but you don't want the Jesus who makes all of that possible, let me tell you, you're not saved. You don't know Christ. You're still in your sins. Because, you see, if you don't want Jesus, heaven is all about being with Jesus, amen? <laughs> Enjoying his presence, spending eternity with him. Sometimes we want eternal life, but we don't want the saviour. Because we don't understand Christianity, we don't understand the love of God, we don't appreciate what took place on the cross. But once we appreciate it, it overflows into delighting of ga in gathering with God's people as you are gathered here this morning, a delighting of reading the Bible, a delight in praying, a delight in obeying God's word. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, 8 to 10 says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's all God. Also, his salvation is made possible by his work, his grace, his drawing power. And then we are God's workmanship, or his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Friends, your good works do not lead to salvation, but salvation leads to good works. And then how to achieve success on God's terms? This is what we see in the book of Joshua. Joshua wants them to know, firstly, 
Understand that God has saved you. God has put you into the promised land. It's God, God, God. And you need to act and take possession of the land. But what are you going to do? Firstly, you need to love and obey the Lord. Love and obey the Lord. The first sign of true faith is obedience. Obedience is the expression of gratitude. It's not rule keeping. It's not like, oh, I've got to follow, follow these ten rules. You see, we have the Old Testament Ten Commandments, but as Christians, we are not bound by them. We're bound by the Spirit of God working and working in and through us to obey all of God. And uh, you'll notice that the types of things that are in the commandments is how God wants you to live. So in that sense, we're bound with them. But it's not like I have to obey these laws so I can be saved. No, it overflows in obedience when you know Jesus. Be strong, be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. In other words, keep your focus on God's word. And verse 11, so be very careful to love the Lord your God. I love Psalm 119, which talks about the work of the Lord. It says this, your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and I pant, longing for your commands. Notice that. This is desire for the word. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from human oppression, that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine on your servants and teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Have you ever wept that God, people in a wider society don't care about God and don't, are not interested in his word? Have you just felt the holiness of God and the love of God and you have just, in your prayer, broken down in prayer and in tears because people ignore God and mock God and insult him? The psalmist is so in touch with his God in prayer and desire and delight in the word that he says, streams of tears flow from my eyes. For your law is not obeyed. Maybe we need a few more tears. A bit more passion. A bit more intimacy with our God. But we need time in the word, don't we, to allow it to speak to us. One writer put it this way. When I keep this word in my heart, when I bathe my very essence of being in the teachings of God's word, and am, and am steadfastly committed to obedience, my life functions much more smoothly, much more creatively than it does when I begin to ape the philosophy of shortcut success. It's time, and I, I must confess I've been a bit slack in the, my daily reading program the last couple of months in the midst of business and distractions. And only this week I've gone back to that Regular systematic reading. I read the Bible other times and prepare sermons and Bible studies, but just that intimate time with God. The brilliant pianist uh, Arthur Rubenstein said something to this effect. When I miss practicing a day, nobody knows it. Two days, I know it. Three days, and the world knows it. Thinking just about uh, playing the piano. In the early 1960s, uh, Pastor John Huffman from St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Newport uh, Beach, California, 
was travelling across the Atlantic, he said, on the Queen Mary. And Arthur Rubinson was on that uh, same voyage. And the rumour got out that he had a piano in his stateroom. John happened to get a glimpse of it. And he remembers walking by that stateroom many times and hearing the great performer hidden away at practice. I think we need that with the word of God. That we're reading, we're meditating, we're letting it create God's thoughts in our minds rather than listening to the world. Because there are a lot of other philosophies out there competing for our attention, aren't there? There are religious ideas and groups trying to draw us to them. New Age, astrology, tarot cards, crystals, self-actualization courses, Islam, Buddhism, whatever, Hinduism. There are a lot of other ethics which are quite persuasive in their arguments in our society today, which are contrary to biblical ethics on the issue of abortion or euthanasia or sex before marriage or same-sex relationships. There are pressures upon us to change what God has said. And there are a lot of highly persuasive temptations that also capture our attention, seducing us with false promises. And often these are within the church of Jesus Christ. For example, the word faith movement. You just name it and claim it and God will give it to you. Or the prosperity theology. Give to God and he will bless you materially. And some of these tele-evangelists live in multi-million dollar homes with multi-million dollar yachts or aeroplanes and, and have ministries around the world and, and people just give them more and more money thinking that God's going to bless them materially because they've been tempted to move away from God's word. The people of God in uh, Joshua's time had to stick to the word of, of truth. And we need to do the same. But he says, live a life of separation from the world. I want to think about what that means for them, what it means for us. He says, do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Now, there's a reason why he says this. Clearly, uh, and God has warned them all the way along. He says, do not mix with them, verses 7 and 12. Why? So you won't worship their gods... So you don't begin thinking and behaving like them. In other words, they're going to be amongst you, but in a sense, don't mix in such a way that their thoughts will become your thoughts. Their desires, their religious practices will become yours. This is what he warned them about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. And we will see in Israel's history, and if you read beyond Joshua, that time and time again, as they interacted, they started to worship their gods to imitate their practices and come under the judgment of God. God's own people failed to be separate from the world's and its thinking and its behavior. James 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, friends... We live this side of the cross. 
We must mix with the world and love the people, but we must always maintain a Christian distinctive. This is our difficulty today. We're in the world, but not of the world. We're in the world not to become like it, but to see it transformed. We're in the world so we can maintain a Christian distinctive. Jesus said we are the salt of the earth. So we don't just come together in a holy huddle and that's all we do. No, no, no. We come together to be taught, encouraged, stimulated, so we can go out and be Jesus' ambassadors, Jesus' servants to the wider community. We are the salt of the earth. We add flavor to to the world. We slow down the process of decay. Secondly, we are the light of the world. We point people to Christ and his transforming power. We need to be in the world, but we cannot be seduced by its values and its beliefs. That's the distinction. Sadly, sometimes we are seduced by the pursuit of wealth and comfort or by the sexual ethics of the non-Christian world. God says, maintain a separateness. And then he says, do not intermarry with them. Quite a common Old Testament principle and New Testament principle, by the way. So why does he say don't intermarry with them? They might have some nice, you know, pretty women or nice guys, good character. Uh, they might, why wouldn't he allow them to marry, intermarry? Is he a racist? Not at all. It's not about race. It's not about colour. It's about faith. It says this, Or else, if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these nations that remain among you, and you make marriages with them, and go into them, and they to you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. They shall be snares and traps to you, and scourges on your side, and thorns on your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Friends, in the New Testament, the Bible talks about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39 says, when you have an opportunity, marry only a believer. Right? That's a biblical principle. And uh, if you're not aware, um, that's what we encourage. It's Old Testament principle, New Testament principle. I say to the singles, if you're looking for a marriage partner, in fact, more than that, we say to our young teenagers and we say to our young adults who are normally looking for partners at that stage, we say don't even date someone who does not have the same faith as you. Because often the dating will lead to a marriage. Sometimes we go into dating relationships, or hoping to, uh, we call it missionary dating, right, <laughs> over the years. So we're going to lead them to Jesus. And, uh, and I say, what happens three years later they don't come to Jesus? And you've manip- tried to ma- manipulate them for three years. Then you have to break it off, or you end into a marriage where someone does not share the same faith as you. Uh, you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're not. Uh, they're in the kingdom of darkness. You're in the kingdom of light. You're living your life for the glory of God, and they're living their life for this world. You see, very diametrically opposed thinking and behaviors. We encourage them to seek a person who loves Jesus, they can serve Jesus together with. Which does mean... Now, sometimes you need to love Jesus enough to say, I will remain single rather than enter a marriage with someone uh, which is contrary to the word of God. At the same time, let me say, sometimes in God's grace and mercy, with people I've known who've married uh, unbelievers, and that even in the case in this church, some people have made that decision about, 
trusted God in all of that, and they sometimes have come to faith, and we rejoice that God is able to save uh, partners in that situation. But let me say, if you are married to an unbeliever, then God calls you, if you're already married to them, God calls you to love them, to serve them, to pray for them, to be a good model of Christ. 1 Corinthians 7 addresses that. Because there are some people in 1 Corinthians 7 who thought, oh, they just come to Christ, they think, oh, my partner's not a Christian, should I get rid of them? Paul says, no, no, you don't have to get rid of them. That's your marriage partner, right? They're acceptable to God if you're already married. Love them, serve them, build a strong marriage together. And many of you, some of you in that situation, you think, yeah, my husband doesn't come to church, I come to church. And, um, you know, we do things together, we do things separately, and I wish, I pray, some of you would say that my spouse would love Jesus, turn from sin. And some of you have been praying for years, saying, I want to spend eternity with my spouse. Pray for them, love them, serve them. And let me say carefully, if you're this morning here in the auditorium on life. So if you're the unbelieving spouse of a Christian who just comes along with your spouse, maybe, to church, God loves you too. And we love you. We want to see you come to know Christ and find forgiveness and joy in him. And uh, we encourage, encourage you to, to pursue Christ and know him. And thirdly, don't worship their gods. And all the, the non-mixing and the, not intermarrying is so that you don't worship their gods. And you might think, well, no need to talk about this. We don't worship their gods. You know, uh, I've never offered a child in sacrifice. I like to keep my children safe, right? I mean, I've never set up a stone statue and sacrificed to idols. That's not me. That's a long way away from me. Uh, I'm not involved in sexual worship practices with temple prostitutes. Not my experience. Well, um, that's their, their period of time. It says, make mention, if you make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone else to swear by them, then you shall not serve them nor bow down to them. But I wonder if we just modernize it a little bit. I wonder whether there's a bit of uh, pagan worship in our church or in modern churches, where we can worship our order of service or a particular kind of music instead of Jesus Christ. Or we believe that somehow we can buy our salvation with our good works in pagan offerings instead of presenting ourselves to God. Or we can worship our understanding of theology instead of the God who has revealed himself to us in the personal work of Jesus. Our worship attention can be focused on our marriage partner, on our children or our work or our nation, and they become our gods. I'll never forget a woman who said to me once, I said, I can't come to Jesus because I have to love God more than I love my daughters. I can't come to Jesus because I have to love God more than I love my daughters. And as, as much as I tried to explain to her that God is the, is the ultimate and you're called to love and serve him, and when you love and serve him, it will overflow into your love for your daughters. But friends, if my daughters are God then I'm insulting the true God. I've got to love my God, how do I say this, more than my granddaughter. <laughs> She's really small and cute. But see, that's the biblical thing, that God is primary. And so often, sometimes we make 
make our spouse or our children our God and everything's about them. And yes, we need to love and serve and do all those things. But I wonder in your mind and in your heart, who is God? Finally, the consequences of unfaithfulness, just to make some comment here. If they are unfaithful to God, they also will be judged. The Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Verse 13 and you may be sure that the Lord, your God, will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become like snares and traps and so on. Part B, if Israel sins, sins God will punish the nation. Verse 14, now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all these good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled, not one has failed. But just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come to you, so he will bring on you all the evil things he has threatened until the Lord your God has destroyed you from this good land he has given you. And so because we know later in the history of Israel they failed to obey God and God sends them into exile to the Assyrians in the 800s and then later the southern kingdom goes into exile into Babylon. God promised if you obey me you'll find blessing. If you disobey me you'll go into, or into exile through judgment. And then the nation is dri driven into exile. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, go and serve other gods and bow down to them. The Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. Promises of blessing and of curse and of judgment. As I come to the end, in chapter 24, what and you can read that later, Joshua now rehearses the story of God's work amongst his people. He says, guys, this is how God has worked out of Egypt, promises to Abraham, out of Egypt, in the wilderness, across the Jordan River. God's done all of this. Let me remind you, everything, my last words, I'm about to die. Remember, right? This is what God has done. And then they have their covenant renewal ceremony. And Joshua, at the end, challenges them to make a decision. You'll be familiar with some of these words. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors, worship before the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. There were gods in Egypt. Get rid of those ones, right? Serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates those past gods, or you can serve these present gods. There's, there's an option of three, right? The old gods, the present gods in the land, or the true God. That's the choice they have. Then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed these great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which he traveled, we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. My final words before I die. I'm saying to you, love God. Serve him above everything else. Don't follow the other gods. My hope is that you would say, we too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Amen. Lord God, we thank you that you worked very powerfully through Joshua and the people of God in the Old Testament to 
place them into the promised land. We thank you, God, that it was your work. As you said, you fought for the people. But you also call us uh, to covenant obedience. Lord, we thank you for the new covenant of Christ's death, of his blood shed on the cross, his broken body broken for us and for the reconciliation we can have with you. We do pray, God, that we would live lives of faithful obedience, delighting in our relationship with you. May we be a people, God, who don't simply want a ticket to heaven, but we want Jesus who makes possible the ticket to heaven. And may that lead to prayers and passionate evangelism and mission and discipling. May it lead to to tears when we see the lostness of our society, our families, our neighbours, our friends, that it might catapult us into holy living and witness and love in Jesus' name. We pray it in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.